Amen. Grab a seat. My name's Ernie. If we've never met, I'm the pastor here. Welcome to Mercy Hill Church. Uh, it is great to be with you. How was Thanksgiving for you guys? Hmm? I love Thanksgiving. It's like the best holiday in the planet. I know we're starting to celebrate Christmas right now. We started celebrating Christmas the day after Thanksgiving, but I mean, Thanksgiving just, it's just a, it's a 10 for 10 holiday. Turkey, great food, football, nap. What else could a man ask for? I mean, it's just so good. We almost had a calamity, a catastrophe uh, when my brother was in charge of cooking the turkey, and it was like Wednesday, and he's like, yeah, I haven't gotten the turkey yet. And I'm like, you know, they, they, they're frozen when they get here. And he's like, no, no, he luckily did more research than I did and found a place where he could have one that wasn't frozen. But it was, it was, uh, it was, it was fun to have a family in town. You know, my family, I'm originally from Louisiana. And we found ourselves reminiscing one night about just some crazy things that happened. Like, uh, we ended up talking about Katrina. You know what Katrina is? Maybe you know what that is? 2005, Katrina completely transformed and changed the state that I lived in. I mean, for you guys that aren't familiar with it, to give you an idea about it, I was in college. I was a sophomore. It was August 2005. My entire family was living with me uh, as 80% of the city of New Orleans was underwater. Like 80%. And the agency was supposed to like, bring aid. Well, they couldn't because they were 20 feet underwater where their building was. So there was no hope, help coming. And 43 days it would take to pump the water out of the city and fix the levees and all those kind of things. So for 43 days, there was water in the city. I mean, even on September 1st, I was just, there was still 60,000 people living in the Superdome in a convention center. There was $160 billion of damage that was done. It was devastating. It was so devastating that I remember on Christmas break, I got a job working construction in New Orleans. And I lived on the North Shore, okay? If you can imagine this, if you look at Louisiana, if you're not from there, you're going to see this like little hole in the foot. And on the, that's a lake called Lake Pontchartrain. On the south side is New Orleans. On the north side was Mandeville Covington. That's where I lived. That's where my parents lived. And so over Christmas break, I would drive across with my employer, because you couldn't stay in the south side, um, across the causeway, a bridge 24 miles long. And what you would typically see would be all these lights from the city. But we would leave at 4.30 in the morning, so it's still dark. And it was so strange driving into a city that had no lights. There's nothing good waiting for you. And driving down a city that looked like a hurricane just hit the day before, it's just absolute devastation, going into people's homes and helping them piece together their life and put it back together as they've lost generations of history in their family in that spot. Just absolutely devastating. So you may have never been through a storm or seen something like that in your life. Maybe one day you will. But here's something I'm willing to bet. That that kind of devastation has happened in your soul before that there's been something in your life that has completely transformed the trajectory of your life. That you've said, I'm never gonna be the same because of this thing that has happened. And not in a good way. 
that there's just something that's happened at a level that's just put you on the, on the face of the garage, falling asleep, weeping, going, what is going to do? How am I going to get out of this? How will anything ever be the same? How will anything ever be put together? See, if that's happened in your life, you're in the right place this morning. Because as we open up the book of Ruth, and that's what we're going to be opening up, there's a Bible by your feet or around you. If you don't have one, that's our gift to you to own. But as we begin to look at the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth is a story of redemption. That you take an absolutely devastating moment, absolute calamity, like the worst thing you could imagine, just dire straits. And God uses those things to redeem Sir, a woman in this story and a family and a line that gives them a future they never could have imagined. See, church, what we need to hear this morning is we look at the story of Ruth is, yes, there's going to be struggle. There's going to be dark times. But the question we have to wrestle with is, is in those moments, who do you run to? Who do you run to? Because in chapter one, we're going to see three different responses to calamity in our lives from people who profess to know Jesus? How are we meant to respond when the world is falling down around us and there seems like there is no hope whatsoever? Let's pray and let's get into it. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to open the word. Thank you for the book of Ruth. I, God, I ask that in this moment, as we deal with the darkness of this text, the difficulty of it, God, that your hope and joy would rest on us, that we would set our eyes to you and not to other things, that we'd look to you as our hope, our salvation, our redeemer, and not other stuff. And God, as we struggle to do that, may we cling to the mercy and grace of God, knowing that your grace doesn't run out, your mercy doesn't run out, your goodness, it doesn't have a limit. And that's why we need to draw to you. We love you, Lord. We praise you. Amen. Okay, Ruth chapter 1. Open it up, and you're going to start right here where he says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to soldier in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. I promise you, you should not name your children that name, okay? Name your kid Kilion, all right? And they were Ephraites from Bethlehem and Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Okay, so let me just kind of set the scene for you guys, all right? Because you're like, that's a lot of weird names, all right? They're not good dog names either, all right? I would not call your dog Kilion, all right? We start yelling for Kilion on the street. That probably doesn't sound very good. But, and there's a lot of context that is really important for us to understand here. So it says this, this story starts in the time of the judges. And I'm not sure what you know about scripture at this moment in time, but the judges was not a good time to be alive. All right. In fact, the end of the book of Judges ends with this. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Okay. There was a time when Israel was ruled by several judges. And sometimes you had a good judge. It was a good time for Israel. They had a bad judge. It was a bad time for Israel. But it really ended in a place of volatility. It ended in a place where like might made right. Like if you were Samson, you could be king for the day. You know, if you weren't, mm, Things were probably going to go bad, pretty bad for you. It's like the Wild West. If you've ever watched a, like a Western, it's just, it's just 
things are going bad to good people all of the time. And to make things worse, that in the time of the judges, it enters into a time of famine. Okay? It says the story starts out with there's famine in the land. There's no rain. There's no crops. That means there's no food and there's no income. And it's in the place of Bethlehem. The word Bethlehem, guys, means the place of bread. And this, the house of bread. That's what it means, the house of bread. And in the house of bread, at the beginning of the story, is barren. There's no food. There's no bread to be had. And now Elimelech is taking his family to Moab. And Elimelech, as scholars think, was someone who was along the line, all right, who followed the line of Caleb. And he was probably aristocrat. He was probably a rich person of means. And now he's taking his family to Moab, okay? Uh, And I don't know what you know about Moab, uh, but it's not good either. Moab is not a good place. Moab was the Moabites were the descendants of Lot, okay? So you have this man, this Israelite over here, and they're going to Moab, which are the descendants of Lot. If you don't know the descendants of Lot, is Lot was Abraham's brother. And when Abraham, all right, and Lot went to settle in a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. Y'all know that place? All right, it was so evil, God destroyed it. And Lot took his family and ran from it. And his wife looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. What also goes on about that story is this, is that Lot's daughters go, hmm, there's no men because they're all dead in Sodom and Gomorrah. So let us get dad drunk. We'll sleep with him and have children of incest. And the children of Lot became the people of the Moabites. So you have the people of the promise going into the land of the people of incest. So not only is bad things happening at home, they're walking into a bad situation. They're walking to a place that is not good. You see, whenever you see the Moabites enter into the story of Israel, bad things begin to happen, especially when the men of Israel begin to marry or give relations with the women of the Moabites. The women of the Moabites are like the Jersey Shore girls, okay? You ever watch that show? You like that show? I'm sorry, but that's what they were like, okay? They were famous for being seductress. They were famous for being, like, a complete temptress. Like, that's who they were. Like, like at one point in Israel's history, like, 24,000 men of Israel, like, left their families and their country and went to Moab. It, because it followed these women there, and God struck all 24,000 of them dead. Like, like they, they cause calamity pretty regularly, and so Elimelech is taking his family to Moab. That's like the Vanderbelts, guys. You know who the Vanderbelts are? Richest people in America. It's like them losing all their fortune and moving to Cleveland, okay? All right? That's what it's like. And he's taking his boys to the land, to the land of the Jersey Shore, and it's, gonna be, it's not going to be a lot of fun. And it doesn't take very long in this story that you see things are going terribly bad. Like verses 3 through 5, we won't read them, but I'll just kind of tell you what it is. Like verse 3, things are, 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 are starting to go bad. Elimelech dies. And in verse 4, his two sons, the boys, they marry Moab women, Opa and Ruth, okay? And by verse 5, 10 years later, both of her boys have died without an heir. There's no kids. So here's Naomi. She's a widow. Her two sons have passed, and she has these two girls from the Jersey Shore and no heir, no one to carry on the name. And it's really important in ancient culture as a female that you would have a man in the family, 
Because it's not that women couldn't work, it was just a lot of discrimination they would face back then, a lot of sexism they would face back then. And if you didn't have a man in the family, it really reduced your opportunities and really gave you a destination of poverty and getting into the kind of professions that are really, are really difficult, where a woman doesn't feel like she has any other options. This is a hopeless situation. This is a bad beginning to a story. If your parents told you the story as a little kid growing up, you'd be like, well, Dad, this is depressing. Why are you telling me this? And in the rest of the story, what we're going to see through the next couple of verses, we're going to see how these characters, these three women, respond to this horrible moment. See, verse 6, let's pick up in verse 6. It says, Then she arose, this is Naomi, with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. This is the first time, guys, God's name is mentioned in the story. And if you look at it in your Bible, you're going to notice something. It's written in all caps. You know why it's written in all caps? It's because the translator knew that the, 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 the kind of name, the name that was used for God at that moment was his covenant name, Yahweh, meaning the faithful one. See, right at the beginning of the story, when everything is going bad, when it seems destined for the plane to crash, when it seems destined for all this to just be horrible, God is beginning to enter into this story, into this darkness to give hope. Why? Because that's who he is. He's the faithful one. This is a picture of a glimmer of hope. It's just the door beginning to crack open. Church, I want to promise you this right now. In your darkest days, in your darkest moments, God is working. You may not see it. You may not experience it. You may not even understand how he's going to do it. But I promise you, if you begin to seek him in those moments, you will begin to, seek, you will begin to see him working in your life because God does not forsake his people. He does not forsake those who he has chosen. He does not leave you aside. He is not a derelict father. And as we'll look at the book of Ruth, you're going to see more and more about how God is entering in this to redeem it. Even in the darkest of moments, you want proof that God will use the darkest of moments for good? All you have to do is look at the cross. Think about the story of the gospel. Jesus shows up, puts on flesh, lives amongst man, never sins, loves people perfectly, and humanity seeks to kill him. Is there a darker story than that? But here's the crack of light. That in the darkness of that moment, God created a victory that none of us could have created for ourselves. That he accomplished salvation on the cross by paying for our sins by bearing the wrath of God and the judgment of God had sent in his person on the cross and then rose three days later, winning salvation for all those that would trust in him. God has a way of taking the darkest, ugliest things and creating the most beautiful stories of redemption. Some of you feel like your story is unredeemable. It's not true. So how will you respond? Look at their response. Verse 7, he says, so, so she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law 
And they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Opah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, to her God. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. My, may, God, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And then Naomi says, and then Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, and she said, no more. Listen to me, guys. Big passage of scripture right there. This is what you need to hear. The only response in times of despair is to cast your hope on God. The only response in times of despair is to cast your hope on God. Because as you look at this, guys, this is dark stuff. This is not fun. I mean, look at this story. Naomi, she has lost everything. Her husband has died. Her sons have died. She's lost her fortune. She has no future. All she has is this one girl from the Jersey Shore. All she has is this one Moabite girl just coming with her. All, that's all she has. Like, listen to me. Calamity, guys, is going to come into your life. If it hasn't yet, it will find you because we live in a fallen world. And when that fallen world touches us, it causes many of us the question, God, where are you? Where are you? I mean, I just remember as I was in New Orleans just seeing all the newscasters, like, so talking to pastors, every question was like, so where is God in this? Just over and over and over and over again. And we begin to ask those questions. We begin to, we begin to wonder those things. And maybe calamity has touched you. Because I remember what Steve said about the statistics about abuse. And I know that's probably true for some of you in this room. That you've been violated in some of the worst ways possible. You haven't shared it, you've stuffed it. And it marks you and it scars you. And it's put you on a trajectory. And it's, had you, and it's probably had you in a place going, man, what do I do? Will I ever be made whole? I know that many of you ex have experienced pain and loss. You've heard the word cancer. Cancer. 
Some of you have experienced divorce. And all sorts of brokenness. The question is, when that comes into your life, how do you respond? Look at how the daughters respond. One good, one bad. The first one is you have Oprah. All right, I always want to say Oprah because that's where she got her name. It's true. It's a true story. Another story for another day. But if you look at Oprah, she's the professor. Okay? Ruth is the possessor. And what I mean by that is her is the professor that in order for her to marry into a Jewish family, she had to make a proclamation of faith about Yahweh. And now, when hard times come, where does she end up going? What does Naomi say? She ends up going back to her old gods and her people. She runs back to her history. She returns to her old ways. Guys, when tragedy strikes, it lets you know what you really trust in. It tells you and others where you really find hope. What you do after tragedy strikes tells you and others where you're going to find your hope. And for some of us, we respond a lot like Opa. That when hard times come, we return back to old rhythms of living. We return back to old gods in our life. We don't call them gods, but we may call them alcohol. We may call them substance abuse. We may call them relationships. We may call them sex. We may call it whatever it is, but we begin to seek security in those things. Opah is returning back to seek security. And you may be like, Ernie, you're being a little bit hard on her, right? Like, this is a pretty tough moment. And listen to me. Yeah. She's trusting in the logic of that day. It's like, okay, I need the security of a man. Chances aren't very high there, but they're, very, but they're much higher at Moab. Maybe I'll just return to God and I'll return to these gods and these people and I'll find security. Many people look at him and be like, that's a wise decision she just made. And many of us look at Ruth and say, that's an unwise decision that you're making right there. <laughs> Here's the thing about following Jesus. It doesn't always make sense to us. It doesn't always make sense to trust God in moments where it completely flies in the face of conventional logic of what you should or should not do. That's why, guys, the word of God needs to be your guide in life and not your reason and your thoughts. What does scripture say about our thoughts compared to his? What does scripture say about his purposes compared to ours? What does scripture say about his perspective compared to ours? In every way, it's greater than ours. In every way, man will scheme and think of wise things to do, but they don't see the future, and God does. And guess what? God loves you. His heart is for you, not against you. So you have Opah, the confessor that goes back, but then you have the possessor, and this is Ruth. She, her confession is not empty, but it's Filled with faith. Look at her confession. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. And where you die, I will die. And there will, there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. She has just lost her husband and her sister-in-law is going back home. And her mother-in-law is 
urging her to go back. But instead, she has decided to live as a foreign woman in a foreign land, as a Moabite woman, as a woman of low reputation. I mean, that is faith, guys. That is trust. One scholar said like this, there is no more radical decision in all of the memories of Israel. Ladies, you want a hero? Here's one right here. Here's a woman that displayed more faith than Abraham. She acted with no promise in hand, with no divine blessing pronounced, without a spouse, possession, or any support. She gave up marriage to a man to devote herself to an old woman in a world dominated by men at that. This is a woman of fortitude. This is a woman of character. This is a woman of faith. Do you see the two different responses? One leans on what conventional knowledge would tell her to do. The other one leans on the God that she has found. And is foremost following that God. Many of us would have looked at Ruth like, what are you doing? This is a terrible decision. In fact, her own mother-in-law is looking at her saying, don't do that. What are you doing? Guys, there's going to be a moment in your life where calamity happens, and you're going to have to cling to one of two things, the way you think about something or the way that God thinks about it. There's going to be a moment where you're like, are you going to keep the road? Are you going to keep the faith? Are you going to keep walking with Jesus? Are you going to keep trusting him with your finances when all of a sudden you lost your job? Are you going to keep pursuing your spouse when things go awful, they go off the rails? What about when your children's minds are captured by the world and they begin to follow a rhythm that's completely unbiblical and wrong? Are you going to bend your convictions to fit the comfort of that moment? When horrible things happen, where are you going to go? Now, there's a third person in this story. And the third person is the most encouraging one to me. It's Naomi. Look at Naomi. She's not thriving. She's not the pillar of faith her daughter-in-law, her Moabite daughter-in-law is. She's struggling. She's giving bad advice to them from a loving place. She's openly telling her daughters-in-law to abandon God and go back and find security elsewhere. Why is she doing it? Well, she's motivated because she loves her. She wants what's best for them. The problem is she's not pointing them to their best. Many of you get bad advice that is motivated by love all of the time. Students in the room, College students, how many of you have heard, hey, church and God are important, but school is first? You know what they've just told you? They've just told you to value your standing and education above your maturation in Christ. Why did they do that? Do they hate God? No. They probably, you probably have parents that love God but they're giving bad advice. And I'm not saying, students, I'm not telling you I don't have to go to school anymore, take tests or anything like that. I'm not saying that at all. 
I'll just be very clear. I'm not saying not to honor your parents. I'm telling you, you've got to recognize good advice and bad advice. And when we get sideways with the Lord, often we can give some bad advice to people and point them in the wrong direction. And she's given bad advice, and her struggle isn't done. Like, when she gets back to town, look at verse 19. She says, so then the two of them went on into, until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why? Call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. You know what Naomi teaches us in this moment? Is that trusting the Lord is not without struggle. Naomi is struggling right now. She's returned, and think about it, like, there's a lot of things. Like, she's just gone through the worst thing of her life, and now she's returning home. And when she left, she was rich. She had a family, and now she's walking the streets that she used to walk without her, now without her husband or her boys. She has no money. She's poor. Could you imagine the gossip? Because you know the gossip back then. It's not like a new thing, right? Like, could you imagine them being like, oh, my goodness, is that Naomi? Time has not been good. She never should have left. What is she doing with that girl from the Jersey Shore? Oh, my God, this is not going to work out. And what does she do? She cracks. She gets home, and she finally cracks. She starts, she starts screaming at God. She says, don't call me Naomi, which means sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And she begins to blame God for what has happened in her life, that God has destroyed her. Does that sound familiar? You ever gotten there before? Here's the good news. What this story shows us is that God is okay with the struggle. That his response to Naomi, what we're going to see in this story, is grace and mercy and a future for them. The reason why I love Naomi's response is because I don't always respond like Ruth. And that's being generous, say, always respond. Maybe you're kind of like me in that. That my response more looks like Naomi where I'm following God but angry with God and embittered in my heart. And what we're going to see in the book of Ruth as we go through it is how gentle and loving and good God is. Because God didn't bring her family to ruin. Calamity did. The brokenness of this world that was caused by our sin. But God will be a part of her solution. God will be a part of her redemption. Some of you need to hear that this morning, that it's okay for you to struggle. Because when you struggle, you feel condemned. You feel like you've got to make it up to God. And yes, we need to repent from our, our, our lack of faith at times. But we need to receive the goodness and grace of God that is readily there. You don't need to beat yourself up. You don't need to tear yourself down. Jesus was already beaten up and torn down for you. The price has already been paid. What this story shows us 
is that redemption is even for us who don't walk a perfect line, who lack faith. There's a little bit of glimmer of hope in the verse of 22. Next week, we'll talk all about that hope. But verse 22 says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth and the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. You see that little glimmer of hope? When did they leave? In the time of famine. When are they coming back? In the time of harvest. The author did not just give us this to let us know that, hey, they came back sometime in the fall. The author gave us this context to allude that there is going to be life in this story. That the darkest days are behind them. And he's foreshadowing how the king of the harvest in our lives is going to redeem theirs and that we could have redemption in Christ because the king of the harvest has already shown up and he's already working. There's always hope in our stories when we know the king of the harvest. No matter how dark it gets, he is the equalizer. See, that's why when you come into moments of calamity, You have to begin to open your eyes and look because God is always moving and he's always working. And you may not like what he does or it may not come in the way you think it should, but he's preparing a harvest for you. So here's the question. When calamity comes in your life, what direction are you going to walk? Are you going to walk back to your old life or are you going to walk towards your new one? It's okay if you struggle, but what direction are you going to walk, Mercy Hill Church? Let me pray. Jesus, in Psalm 62, say this, For God alone, O my soul, waits in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God's rest, my salvation and my glory and my mighty rock and my refuge is God. Lord, only when that is true in our hearts can we experience the glorious life that you've given us. Even in midst of the greatest mountains we may face or the deepest valleys we may walk through, God, I pray for these men and women in this room that they would know the goodness of the Lord in the deepest of their pains. I would pray that they know that you are working. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in others' lives. And I got a book full of stories of you being faithful and good. So when our eyes lie to us, when the world tells us it's hopeless and it's broken beyond repair, when our own hearts and minds lie, may we cling to the goodness of you, trusting fully on your ability to bring good out of broken vessels like us. God, transform our hearts and our minds, not only just for us, 
but that we could have a story to tell the others who are broken, that there's hope, that there's a God that loves you, that there's a God that has a future for you, that there's a God that wants to see you walk out of that mess and one day will completely redeem you. Lord, you've already made our sin as far as the east is from the west, but there will be a day when we will be in your presence and sickness will be no more, tears will be no more, and brokenness will be no more. And you are giving us foreshadowing and taste of that today. Give us an eternal perspective. God, we love you. Lord, let us worship you today. Amen.